From the studios of the Private Client Network in Midtown Manhattan, welcome to Luxury on Location. This dynamic podcast features conversations with luxury realtor Kevin Snedden, founder of the Private Client Network at Compass and his Private Client Network partners. In this, our seventh episode of season two, Kevin will be speaking with Jeff City Block, our Private Client Network partner in Philadelphia. Jeff is a top luxury real estate broker in Philadelphia, and here's why. A lifelong Philadelphia resident and Temple University graduate, Jeff earned his nickname City because of his passion for all things Philadelphia. A former corporate attorney, Jeff stakes his reputation on providing objective advice, and his negotiating skills are unparalleled. A strong advocate for his clients, Jeff has consistently been recognized for outstanding customer satisfaction. And in case anyone's counting, Jeff has brokered over $1 billion in real estate sales during his career, over $129 million in 2021 alone. What we admire most about Jeff is his integrity, his business acumen, and his overall competitive edge. We are so fortunate to have Jeff in our private client network, and we are delighted to have him as our featured guest on Luxury on Location. Jeff City Block, welcome to Luxury on Location. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. So, you notice I called you by your nickname, Jeff City Block. And why don't you take our listeners through your whole background and what you've done in Philadelphia and why your nickname is City Block and all that? I think it's really interesting. Absolutely. And sort of the fun thing about the nickname is that a lot of people call me that, whether they call me like City or one sort of funny thing I'll just get started with is that a lot of times if I introduce myself to someone, I can almost expect it. Someone say, hey, um, you know, I'm whatever, Joe Smith. And I'll say, oh, hey, I'm Jeff Block. And they'll be like, you know, wait a second. And then they'll say, Jeff City Block. It's sort of, it's really become a known thing. And and I have to say that of all the money I've spent on marketing, of all the marketing I've done over the years, and I've done a lot, nothing, nothing can match the name City and how that has made me known throughout the city of Philadelphia. It's been pretty cool. I never expected that. It came about organically. I never expected that. No, it's brilliant. And it's recall. And it also speaks to the fact that real estate's hyper-local and you know every single city block in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, exactly. And another funny story, and then I'll get into sort of like how I came up with the name is that when I first started using Jeff City Block as a realtor, I might've been a realtor for like six months. I got my first listing and then I had one more listing. And back then, 2002, 20 years ago, and you know, obviously I was a newer agent. I didn't have many listings, but- I think because my name stood out so much, Jeff City Block, people would say, remember people coming to me back in like 2002, 2003 and, and being like, oh, I see your signs all over the city. That's amazing. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. But knowing that I've only had one or two signs, it was pretty funny just how it sticks in people's heads. Yeah, larger than life. So why don't you take everyone through your overall personal background and how you got into real estate? Absolutely. So I've always lived in the city. I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia and Society Hill in basically in the 70s and 80s. And went to Temple undergrad, decided to major in urban studies. Even back then, when I was like an 18, 19 year old kid, I was interested in the city. And in urban studies, you have to pick a specific area of concentration, a focus area. And most people would pick a substantive area like criminal justice or political science or sociology or something like that. And I came up with the idea instead of picking a specific discipline, can I f- make my focus area the city of Philadelphia and have my focus be courses specifically related to the city of Philadelphia? And they offered 
um, some really cool courses, Philadelphia neighborhoods, Philadelphia prisons, basically taught by like adjunct faculty experts in those areas. It was super cool. And I really loved my major and I loved it at Temple. And, but after that, I, I wasn't sure what to do. My mom was a really successful realtor in Philly and I wasn't interested in sort of going into the family business or doing anything like that. And I actually had no interest in real estate at that time. So I ended up going to law school. I did well in the LSAT. Common story. Didn't know what to do. I went to law school at Temple University. So I stayed in the city, ended up practicing law and I liked it. I was a lawyer. I ultimately was a corporate lawyer at a big firm in Philly and I liked it. But I didn't have a passion for it. You know, I appreciated the law. I, I liked my firm. I liked my colleagues, but definitely no passion. Sort of went to work. I worked on these big deals. I was a small cog in these big deals. And while I was there, people recognized there even that I was like really like into the city and that, you know, something I would talk about. What I had a passion for then was when, when I would talk about the restaurants in the city and different things to do in the city and how much I love the city. So even then, you know, then I was in my 20s, my colleagues sort of recognized me as that being my passion. And they actually started calling me city. I think one guy said like, Hey, you know, city, you know, and then a couple of people called me that soon. Like people were saying like, Hey city. And they, they, they thought it was funny. They called me that. And that was pretty much it. And then as I was a lawyer for a number of years, I ultimately decided just, I was looking for something different. And here's sort of where the change came and, and everything clicked. And it ironically had to do with real estate, but unrelated to being a realtor. My mom owned one of the most successful independent real estate companies throughout the 80s and 90s called Midtown Realty. And Fox and Roach, which was a large local Philadelphia company, was looking to expand into Center City. And actually at that time, they became Prudential Fox and Roach. They bought a Prudential affiliate. They became Prudential Fox and Roach, which eventually became Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. But at that time, Fox and Roach was looking to buy Midtown Realty. And my mom, of course, she came to me and said, Hey, Jeff, you're a corporate lawyer. Can you represent me in the sale of my company to Fox and Roach? And I did. So for the first time ever, instead of being like a small cog or like a, in a big corporate deal or, or a securities deal or an insurance regulatory deal, that's the kind of work that I did. All of a sudden, I was like the main guy handling a smaller transaction, a complex transaction over like a, you know, a shorter period of time. It wasn't I was working on some big thing for many months. This was over a shorter period of time. And, and I did that and I loved it. And, all of a sudden it clicked to me like that's what I want to be doing. I want to be doing complex, smaller deals and lots of them. And here I did this M&A deal, merger and acquisitions deal for my mom's company. And I was like, you know what? Real estate is sort of like that. And I know the guys in my law firm, some of my friends are like, dude, you'd be the best realtor. You know the city so well and you're so passionate and you also know the legal stuff. And I was like, yeah, maybe. So long story short, I, you know, I remember deciding that that's what I wanted to try out. And I, I even had a just I had a passion for the whole idea at that time. So it started off that way. And I remember my parents saying to me, you know, you know, Jewish parents are like, oh, but you're a lawyer and you have no sales experience. Is that what you really want to do? And I thought about that. Like I, I didn't have any sales experience. And I thought, well, maybe real estate for me doesn't have to be about sales experience. It can be about understanding the transactions and sort of having an intuition for how they work and servicing the client. And then, you know, maybe the sales will come. And that is what I built my career on. And I decided to take the plunge. And I remember my first day in real estate, something came to me and I just got a little bit overwhelmed. And I like sort of, this is back in, two, in July of 2001. And it felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And then my second day, I just remember this specifically. I loved it. And I just was like, wow, this is awesome. And then I had a passion for it ever since then. So that's the story of how I got into real estate. And at that time, I had already been called City as a nickname, but, and I even thought to myself, like, hey, that would be like a cool name for real estate. 
But I felt it would be presumptuous in, you know, here we are, July of 2021. I've been a realtor for, let's just say, two days or a week or two weeks. And I was like, it would be presumptuous for someone to come into a field and start calling themselves Jeff City Block right from the get-go. Though I did think that would be a cool real estate name. So I said, I'm going to give it a little bit of time. So when you made the move into real estate, did you ease into it? Did you start trying to do some deals while you're still at the law firm? Or did you just make a clean break and say, I'm going to retire as an attorney and move into real estate sales? Clean break. I sort of looked at my finances and I was like, well, what happens if I don't make a sale for a year? Who knows what's going to happen? And by the way, in July of 2001, people said to me, you're going into real estate now? Like, This is not a good time to go into real estate. The market's been going up for the last few years and we're probably going to have a recession. And, and I was like, oh, well, whatever. It's what I want to do. So I actually made a clean break, but we'll get into this, but they ended up being wrong about that. You know, why you can't really time the market about predicting that sort of 2001 recession. Cause what followed obviously was like five or six of like the hottest years in real estate history followed by the great recession. So by then I was well established. So I knew I had enough money saved that if I didn't make a sale for a while, that I'd be okay. And I figured, hey, I can, maybe I could always go, I could always go back to the law. I mean, I kept my license up and I still have my license to this day. And I actually had my first settlement on my birthday of that year, September 28th of that year, 2001. And I all of a sudden started, you know, I just, the market was great. And I just, again, I just like had a passion for it and an immediate sort of intuition for it. And I just started really like doing great right away. And it was really within, I'd say, I don't remember the exact date, but certainly within six months in, it, all of a sudden I said to myself, you know what, now I'm Jeff City Block. And now I'm going to start marketing Jeff City Block. That's great. You just felt the brand. And what I was going to ask you earlier too is what was your approach when you got into real estate to say, I'm going to build a business and this is how I'm going to do it? My approach, well, it's funny, you know, 2001 was a different time. 2001 wasn't a time when I thought or when it was generally thought in the industry. I mean, there were some people who were at the forefront of this, but I was not of being an entrepreneur. I didn't get into real estate to be an entrepreneur. I got into real estate to sell houses, to service my clients, to do deals. And my approach was to sell as many houses as possible. I mean, there were very few teams back then. Most agents were individual. Most agents did not have admins. The whole internet with marketing, I mean, the internet was obviously there. And the, I mean, I remember it was like a big deal when the MLS went to allowing six pictures. So it was a very, very different time. And I remember when I was a kid and my mom was a realtor, there was no cell phones and not even call waiting. So I remember my mom would stand in the kitchen on a corded dial phone and make her business calls. And if she was like in the car or doing something else, then there was no real estate taking place at all. So it wasn't quite like that. I don't go back that far, but it was still a different world. So my goal was to network, use my Philadelphia network, my sphere of influence, and meet people, sell as many houses as possible, and work as hard as possible. Open houses every weekend. If someone called me and said, hey, I want to see this property for $200,000 in like an hour, I'd just be like, I'll be there. I was doing everything and just worked really, really hard and you know, built my business that way. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is you had the skill set. You had the market knowledge and you put it all together and then you quickly built a brand that's differentiated through your nickname, which plays into your knowledge of the Philadelphia market on a street by street level. And I could see how business would come your way. And obviously you had a strong network to build upon. So that's really interesting. And so you were differentiated right out of the gate. 
And yeah, and I had a two-pronged approach. I mean, I, I mean, on one hand, I relied on referrals and knowing people in my network. But at the same time, right off the bat, again, this is when advertising wasn't on the internet, but it was actually in like the local papers and the Philadelphia Inquirer. I mean, that's where the vast majority of ad dollars were at that time. I felt that marketing was really important and I wanted to get the name Jeff City Block out there. So I remember one of my first ads and, you know, I, every once in a while, like, I think I still have a copy of it. It said, born in the city, bred in the city, Jeff City Block. And I've really been doing a lot of advertising ever since then. I mean, now it's all on the internet. Angela, how does Kevin City Snedden sound? Is that, does that, I, I have that, a trademark. Would that play in New York? I, I grew up in New York. Right. <laughs> you do have a trademark? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's funny. So I do have a trademark. So this, you know, I also learned a little bit about Lawyer. trademark. Lawyer. I learned a little bit about trademark law through this whole thing because apparently, obviously there are other city blocks. It's a fairly common name, but I'm pretty sure I have it locked down for someone to be city block in as a residential realtor in Philadelphia. Somebody could probably do it in a different city or different places. All right. We'll take that under advisement. (laughs) So why don't you take our listeners through the Philadelphia real estate market? Give us a broad overview and then tell us anything you want to tell us about the market. Sure. So the Philadelphia market in general, and first I'm very parochial. That's one thing I tell people. So like, I don't know other real estate markets. So, you know, for all I know, like other real estate markets are the same or different, but I do know Philadelphia. So the Philadelphia market is, Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods and it's definitely differentiated by different neighborhoods, certainly as far as the strength of the market. I mean, some neighborhoods are really hot and some are not. And even now, obviously that changed a lot with the pandemic and there were some changes there. But city has a really awesome housing stock. In center city, Philadelphia, it's virtually all townhomes. I mean, we call them townhomes. Maybe, I guess they're similar to brownstones to some extent. A lot of them are brick. We have a lot of townhomes. And then as you start to get within the city limits, and I only do business in the city limits, within the city limits, then you have some areas where there are twins. And then as you get a little bit further out within the city limits, there are some singles. And then there are also a lot of condos as well. And of course, rental apartments and so forth, mostly in center city, but really throughout the neighborhoods as well. And when I first got in the business from 2001 to 2007, the market was really hot. I mean, incredible appreciation, huge number of sales, plenty of inventory and plenty of demand. So both supply and demand were high. The market was great. Prices went up. Then that all came to a pretty quick halt with the Great Recession, which probably really hit Philly in 2008. And obviously with the Lehman Brothers collapse, that really really just stopped things in their tracks. Things actually you know, were slowing down a little bit before then, but not so bad. And then it really took us a few years to recover. And since then, prices have really come back in most segments of the market. So for example, if you have a townhome in Center City that you bought in the early to mid aughts, that went down in 2009, 2010, a little bit, and then came back up and then some and has really appreciated great. However, if you bought a condominium, especially certain condominiums in the early to mid aughts, they're still below value for below the value of where they were in 2007 and 2008. So that market has not come up as much. That's really interesting. And, and you know, I know that townhouse market in Philly, to me, it has a, that part of Philly has a real like sort of Georgetown feel. Right. So Center City. So I know Georgetown a little bit, but yeah, yeah I mean, Center City. So basically in Philly, Center City goes from river to river, from the Delaware to the Schuylkill. And then there's multiple neighborhoods from Society Hill, which is historic down by the river. Wash West, also known as the Gaberhood, which is like a really cool neighborhood with lots of great restaurants and shopping. Rittenhouse Square and then Fittler Square. That's sort of like the main strip of Center City, generally thought of to be the, sort of the most expensive 
most desirable areas in Philly. And, you know, back when I first got into business, that was like really like considered to be like sort of center city proper. But as the city's expanded and it's really expanded since then. And now areas that might not even have, when I was a kid, a lot of these areas didn't even have neighborhood names. It was all just like, oh, South Philly. But now you have Queen Village and Bella Vista and the graduate neighborhood, and then even further south to East Pashonk and Point Breeze and, and New Bold. So these are all neighborhoods that, you know, wouldn't have been like sort of considered sort of hot residential areas and certainly not luxury residential areas 15 years ago, but now are. So if you're a wealthy family and you want to live in the city limits and you have a fair amount of money to spend, like what neighborhoods are people drawn to or would you take someone to? So if people, and again, you know, I think luxury is obviously it's a different threshold, a different level in every city. And one thing about Philadelphia, I'll say this flat out, it's one thing actually I love about it is that Philadelphia has always been known as one of the more affordable, really awesome cities in the country. And when you compare it to Boston, Washington, D.C., obviously New York, it's a lot more affordable. And I think that's, it's also gone up in value a lot. I mean, a real lot. So the prices have increased a lot, but it's a lot more affordable. So I'll just say, roughly speaking here, you know, luxury market, and this is a really, this is just a sort of an arbitrary cutoff, but I'll just say sort of a million plus, I'd say is probably would be considered luxury in Philadelphia. Though again, in Philadelphia, you can find really nice stuff for less than that as well. But if somebody came to me and they just say they came to me and they said, I have 2 million to spend and I you know, want a really nice house and parking, the neighborhoods I would take them to would be Rittenhouse Square, Society Hill, Wash West, Fittler Square. But they might have, even in that price range, they might have trouble finding something. Maybe they go up to three or 4 million. And then the issue becomes, they have the money to spend, but is the inventory there? The answer is not necessarily, not now. What was the biggest impact from COVID on Philly? So one of the biggest impacts is there are a few neighborhoods in Philly that are in the city limits, but I don't want to say a suburban feel because they, they just certainly don't have a suburban vibe. They actually, I think, have, if anything, a really sort of hip, cool city vibe. But they have, I'll just, I have this, they have more space, more green space, so areas like that have become a lot more popular in Philly. And so, for example, University City, which is just west of the Schuylkill River, not as tight as the city, more space, you get more for your money, really, really popular. I mean, prices are really up there. Go a little bit further out and you have East Falls, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill have become really, really popular. Prices are up tremendously. You know, it's funny because I grew up in Center City in Society Hill and my wife is from rural Ohio. So the first property that we bought together was in Society Hill. It was a townhome. And she had lived in apartments in Philly. And as a, she went to, came here to go to University of the Arts, and she had lived in apartments before. So it's not like she never lived in a place with like walls and somebody surrounding you and so forth. But she was not used to living in a townhome, at least as what she saw as her like sort of primary residence as an adult. And she really, really wanted more space, even though we had a great house. And so we ended up moving to University City where we got a single. And then actually in 2018, she still wanted more space. So we moved to Mount Airy. And and those moves sort of also followed some of the trends in Philadelphia. Well, Center City has remained really hot as well. Some of the more, you know, again, University City, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill, areas a little bit more space have become really popular. And that was, as I'm sure it was throughout the country and world, accentuated by the pandemic. People just sort of wanting more space both inside and clearly outside. So you'd say sort of the life cycle is for, you know, sort of young professionals will probably be in Center City. And then over time, as they build families, they'll sort of move and then just want more space and sort of transition a little further outside of that core to get more space? 
Yeah. And I'm, you know, again, I'm sure that's common. And one great thing about Philly is that people can do that while staying in the city and not necessarily having to go to the suburbs. I mean, a lot of people do go to the suburbs. We have really great areas outside of the city here, whether it's the main line or, you know, the media Swarthmore area, Bucks County. And a lot of people go across the river to New Jersey. But the people that I work with are the people who end up staying in the city. I refer people out if they're going into the suburbs, obviously, but if they're staying in the city, whether they're going out to Mount Airy or Chestnut Hill, then they're really, really great options here. And then, of course, as people become empty nesters, they often then move back into the city. So in this post-COVID world, we're now like, what's trending now in the real estate market in Philadelphia? Outdoor space is trending. So one big thing I've seen, condos are still hot, but condos with outdoor space have really held their value or increased in value more than condos without outdoor space. Like that's just one clear example of how the pandemic has changed things. That's definitely become a more valuable resource to have outdoor space, even if you're living in a high rise. Yeah. So let's move into your business. Why don't you tell our listeners about your team, how it's structured, how you run it, how the team differentiates itself? Sure. So as I said earlier, when I first got into real estate, I didn't get into real estate to build a team or I got into real estate to sell houses and to work with people. And that's what I really enjoyed doing. My team started totally organically. It's, I didn't have sort of a business plan, any kind of entrepreneurial plan. I mean, I was selling houses and I realized I was too busy and I needed an assistant to help me. This is back in like 2006 or something. So I hired, actually, I remember I split an assistant with another agent, which was sort of common back then, and then ended up getting so busy that I just hired her for myself. So I had an assistant. Then I realized I was actually having trouble getting back to all my leads. So, you know, one day it was like, I have these three people that called on this sign. I hadn't even been able to get back to them. And I did know there were a few other teams then, not many. And I hired another agent to work with me who would be able to handle my overflow leads. And then all of a sudden I had a team and I called it the city block team. It was just that simple. And it was me and this other agent and the assistant. And as things got busier, I then, you know, I hired another agent and another assistant and it all was very organic. And that's still how my team is built. Right now it's me and 10 other agents and I have four admins. I have a full-time operations coordinator, a full-time marketing coordinator, a full-time listing coordinator, and a full-time transaction coordinator. And they each have their own roles, sort of the operations coordinator overseeing operations. And you know what I enjoy doing most, I like running the team. I like mentoring young agents. I like training. I like coaching. But what I really like most of all is selling real estate, listing properties, meeting with my clients. So I really maintain that aspect of my business. That's real important to me, as well as the roles of being a team leader. Yeah. I mean, I think what's good about being a team leader too, is you can sort of self-select the business that you really want to focus on. And then you could push some things out to the team and you can be in 10 places at one time, right? If you have 10 people that can actively sell for you. So it opens up the floodgates of opportunity, you know, if you run it the right way. Right. No, totally. And sometimes it's real smooth like that. Sometimes it's not, but that's sort of the reality of running a business. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's been great. Do you spread the team out across geographies and say, really, I want to have neighborhood specialists? Is it by price point type of client or is it just organic? You know, whatever, wherever someone's building influence. It's definitely organic. I run a team that we have our own clients. When I get leads, some, if there's a listing lead comes in that's in my wheelhouse, I take that. If something's not in my wheelhouse, I pass it off to the agent I think that would best be able to handle it. Then we also do Zillow. So we have internet leads come in and they get through a lead generator. They get spread out to the agents on my team. 
And it's really, really worked great. There are people who are available to help each other if somebody's, whether they're out of town, somebody can cover for them or, so that's really, really worked out well. What do you think are the biggest challenges you face in running a team on a sort of week in, week out? What do you seem to struggle with that you feel like, hey, we've got to figure that out? My biggest challenge, I know this is not unique, is definitely time. It's time and delegation. I have a big admin staff, a high quality admin staff. They do a great job. But I find it hard to delegate, I guess. I really like things done in an exact way. And I've really learned actually over the years and even more recently, I mean, again, I've been in business over 20 years, that I can be better and my team can be better and my admin can function better if I don't micromanage. That's like probably the hardest thing for me. So that's sort of my natural inclination. But I've really learned, as a matter of fact, you know, I've seen that the more that I pull off, sometimes the higher quality work they can do. So I I have actually learned that and I'm always trying to improve the way I manage. It's funny, Kevin, like I said, the real estate, listing a property, marketing, doing deals, that came naturally to me. I mean, just my intuition's there. Running a team, managing people, understanding I have to delegate, understanding I can't micromanage, that does not come naturally to me. So that's something I've really worked on. Yeah. Yeah. No, understood. You can't be excellent at everything. You have strengths and weaknesses and you decide either you want to try to develop those weaknesses or you just have somebody else close that gap for you and you focus on what your strengths are. Totally. And the one weakness I had to develop, of course, to get there was not to micromanage. Right. Right. So what advice would you give to a new agent that wants someone that obviously you switched careers? A lot of people come from one area of a career and then they want to move into real estate and real estate is only getting more and more complex these days. So like, what advice would you give someone just starting out in real estate? I would give the advice. First of all, I think that joining a team as a new agent, I think in today's world, in this market, I think joining a team is really, really important, especially if you have no experience. So I think that, and what team you join, it really depends on what you're looking for. Some teams are set up more as machines where it's just like, they're very regimented. You might get more leads, but everything is very regimented. You have to report back and do things in the exact way. And that works better for some agents. Some teams like mine are more organic where I'll provide leads, I'll provide coaching, I'll explain the right way to do things. And it's really important to me that the agents on my team represent the City Block team and give our team's mantra, our slogan is expert real estate representation. And that's what I want to provide to all of my clients and to all City Block team clients. And it's really important that the agents on the team who join my team, they're not out there trying to churn business or do it. They want to provide expert real estate representation. And in my mind, that's how you become successful. And that will lead to success over time. So it really depends sort of what you're looking for. But whatever it is, I think joining a team is really good advice for a new agent. As is, I think making sure that you have funds set aside for any slow periods, expenses, and so forth. So how has the transition into Compass been? And how have you leveraged the Compass platform to sort of further your business objectives? Sure. So I was at Berkshire Hathaway for 17 years before coming to Compass. And I really had no intention of leaving. I, you know, I've been recruited, obviously, like other top agents by Keller Williams and Cobalt Banker and, and other companies. And I really liked Berkshire Hathaway and didn't have any intention of leaving. And I remember I got a, I don't remember if it was a text, I think it was a text from Robert Refkin. And then I think a follow-up call from one of his staff back in early 2018. And to be honest, I hadn't heard of him. Compass wasn't in Philly. And I mean, at that point, I had not heard of Robert Refkin. And I really wasn't even interested in taking the call. I'm like, why would I be interested in talking to some like out-of-town New York company? But he actually contacted me again and sort of stayed after it. And I agreed to take a meeting. 
And I was like blown away and just really impressed. And again, I had lots of recruiting meetings before and never left Berkshire Hathaway. But to make a long story short, I decided to leave and come to Compass. I was just really impressed with the vision and what they had to say. And I have not been disappointed. I mean, I've really loved Compass. Two of their programs that I really utilize a lot are Compass Concierge and Private Exclusive. I have a team policy that every listing that we have has to go on Private Exclusive before it goes on the MLS. And the reason I had to set that policy is because even though Compass has Private Exclusive and we could offer it, I found that a lot of people would just skip that step. I don't know if it was just sort of out of their used to not doing it or just, well, why do that extra step or whatever. But to me, it was, you know, for various reasons, it was really important that everybody do private exclusive for every listing, even if it's just for a day. I mean, if you have a client that says, oh, we have to get our property up immediately, I'd still do private exclusive for a day. And one way I think about it is this. I mean, there are many reasons to do private exclusive, but your property is seen the most when it first pops up as a new listing. I know some people will do like a small price reduction sometimes just to get their property sort of back up top again, or they'll take their property off the market and relist it. I personally don't love those things, but here you have an opportunity with private exclusive to always get another bite at that new listing Apple. It's like an initial bite before no other brokerage can really offer. So you get it up as a private exclusive and all of a sudden it's out there to all of the Compass agents. And not only do you have a chance of selling the property on private exclusive, but I glean a lot of market information from that that helps me ultimately set the price when I put it on the MLS. When I analyze the price of a property, I'm analyzing, obviously, just like every agent, you're analyzing the market data, you can comps, what the property has to offer. But what you never have to analyze is how is it actually going to do on the market? That's something that comes later. And then if, you know, obviously if it's priced too high, you might have to lower the price. If it's priced perfectly, you might get an immediate offer. If it's priced on the lower side, you might get multiple offers. Well, private exclusive, albeit a smaller sample size, gives me the option to actually test the market prior to actually listing on the MLS. And there are properties where not only have I sold properties on private exclusive, but it's helped me tweak the pricing with some you know real live market data before going on the MLS and ultimately getting a higher price from my client and a quicker sale, which is the goal. So that's how I've used private exclusive. And, and again, it's a team policy that every listing has to go up on private exclusive prior to the MLS. Yeah, no, that's smart. It's like a focus group slash market research process so that you can build anticipation, number one, but you can get all these learnings. And then when you do hit the market live, you've benefited from all of that and you're going to put your best foot forward for your client. Yeah, no, that's really smart that you do that with each and every listing. Absolutely. And and then probably the second Compass tool I use the most is Compass Concierge. Like to me, that is incredible. So Compass Concierge, as you know, is where Compass will pay up to a certain amount with no interest and no fees for any work that a client's going to do to improve the property to ultimately increase market value. And for several years in a row, I've been one of the top Compass agents in the country at utilizing Compass Concierge. And I'm honestly surprised more people don't use it more. To me, it's really important and it's a major part of my service to get every property looking its absolute best before we put it on the market. And I talk to my clients, I'm like, with Compass Concierge, they're like, oh, I don't want to do any work. I don't want to spend $50,000 to get you know to get my house ready. Are you crazy? And I, I'll say, well, say I told you that if you spend $50,000, you are going to walk away with an extra $150,000 and Compass will pay for that up front. So what if I told you that you know without spending any money out of your pocket, you're actually going to walk away with an extra $100,000 at the end? And that obviously gives them a different perspective. Yeah, no, that product is a game changer for Compass. And 
clearly the nationwide network that Compass overall has, and then what's unique about our private client network and where you're a partner in that Compass has provided a framework for people to be very entrepreneurial and really further their business by tapping the Compass platform in a variety of ways. And both of those programs also, again, when it comes to referring clients to the private client network and to Compass agents in general, they're like, oh, Jeff, we love working with you. You know, is there an agent sort of like you in another city where we're moving or where some we have family who's selling their home? I mean, not only can I sort of point to the private client network in general as being the best of the best and sort of like, I've said to people like, oh, you know, sort of like the Jeff City block in each different, in each different city. The fact that they have the same tools, you know, they'll be able to put your property on private exclusive, you know, you'll be able to use concierge with them has really been a game changer as well. No, that's tremendous. So in wrapping up this episode, which has been really interesting and I've enjoyed the conversation, here's your opportunity as Jeff City Block, quote unquote, one of the, could be mayor of Philadelphia, if you wanted to be, play the ambassador role and sell our listeners on Philadelphia, you know, take us through everything you feel Philly has to offer. Sure. That, I mean, that's, that'd be great. One thing that I've seen a lot of as being a realtor, especially since the pandemic, when more people are working from home and they can work from anywhere, is people contacting me and saying, hey, we're moving to Philly. And I say, oh, that's awesome. You know, why are you moving to Philly? You know, you moving for a job? And they're like, no, we could work anywhere, but we've done some research and we've determined that Philly is a place to live. And I think Philly has the best food anywhere. We have everything from Philly's famous for the cheesesteak and for the roast pork sandwich and you know, for the Philly soft pretzel. And that stuff is actually truly awesome. And it's like, to me, that's not like a tourist thing. That's something that Philadelphians really eat and love. But Philly has some of the really greatest fine dining as well. Everything from Vetri to even going way back to like George Perrier and Lebec Fan. And we've had really, really great fine dining and everything in between. And, and even our fine dining scene here is really casual. You can wear jeans. And there are also different neighborhoods where there are just a really great concentration of restaurants. East Pashonk, Fishtown, obviously Center City, you know, Rittenhouse Square. We have a really, really great ethnic scene as well. Mexican food, taquerias, Ethiopian food. You know, we have a really great mix of different types of stuff. Obviously great Italian food. Plus you have some really nice schools and cultural institutions, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have great schools, some really, really popular public schools in certain neighborhoods that actually, you know, have a lot of demand, really great private schools. Our sports are great. I would, by the way, say that we have the best sports fans in the country. I think a lot of people, that was talked about a lot. I think a lot of people saw that with like this last Phillies run. I'm a really nice Philadelphia sports fan. If I see somebody from an opposing city, like if I saw, Kevin, if I saw you come to like Lincoln Financial Field wearing your like Giants jersey, I don't know if you wear like a, you know. Yeah, but, but I'm not sure I would do that in, in right. that Okay, in that you might stadium. not, but if you ran into me, <laughs> I would stand up for you because like, I would say like, I was at the World Series, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but I was at a World Series game and I was talking to Astros fans. I was like, hey, you guys up from Houston? They were like, yeah, you know, you know, I love talking to opposing fans. I especially, you know, I respect people. Look, if you're from New York and you're a Giants fan, man, that's awesome. I'd be a Giants fan if I was from New York too. Even if you're from Dallas and you're a Cowboys fan, I I respect that as well. I'll tell you what I don't respect though, Kevin. Cowboys fans from Philadelphia. I hear you. That I do not respect. So, um, you know, I'm sure kidding, but I really don't respect that. So <laughs> that's the best thing you said during this podcast. I know, right? I know. <laughs> 
Well, on that note, Jeff, I really want to thank you for your time. That was really interesting. You, you have a wealth of knowledge of Philadelphia. You built a successful business. And um, I was happy to hear that your mom was in the real estate business. I love the whole multi-generational. I love people that have had parents in real estate and then they're in and then they have children. And, and I love that whole aspect of, of this business. It, it is to a large extent a family business. So I was happy to hear that. And it was a great conversation. And I thank you for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, one funny thing I'll say is my mom's always trying to recruit me back to Berkshire Hathaway, but you know I love it here at Compass. So <laughs> That's excellent. We love Compass too. All right. Well, I will see you hopefully at the next Compass Retreat or Private Client Network meeting or call. And um, thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. A sincere thank you to Jeff City Block for being our featured guest on our seventh episode of the second season of Luxury on Location. That was a great conversation, which we sincerely hope our listeners enjoyed. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. We understand there are a multitude of podcasts out there, so we appreciate that you chose Luxury on Location for your listening pleasure. We hope to see you back for our next episode, when Kevin Snedden will be speaking with another one of our private client network partners and discussing their luxury market. In the meantime, please check out the Private Client Network at Compass, your nationwide resource for luxury real estate. We operate in virtually every luxury real estate market in the country. You can find us at theprivateclientnetwork.com or on Instagram at Private Client Network. Until next time.